Please join me with the scripture reading for today in Matthew chapter 25, or 22, sorry, verses 15 through 46. Matthew 22, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. The same day the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So too, the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what is said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Listen, or sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is it that he is his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you, Peter. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us to understand fully the reality of how religion can become a sham and filled with fakery. And we pray that you would use your word today to open our eyes to the ways in which we fit that profile, dangerously so. I pray, Father, that you'd use your word today to remind us of the importance of loving you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves. And Lord, that you'd use your word today to perhaps even open the eyes of someone here today who's still searching, trying to figure out what it means to have their sins forgiven, to be atoned for their sins, and to have a new relationship with Christ. Oh Lord, I pray that you would work a spiritual miracle in this room today, that you'd birth new people into your kingdom. I pray you do that here in worship too and over the internet. I I ask that there would be ancient words full of life for your glory and for the benefit of your church. So, Lord, help us 
We submit to your word. It is your word to us, and we want to receive it as such. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So how'd your Thanksgiving go? Did you have a good time? Have any awkward questions from an uncle or anything like that that happened? You ever had one of those scenarios where you're in with a family gathering or something and somebody asks a question and the whole room goes silent and you think, why in the world did he ask that? See, the reality is that uh, the questions we ask often reveal a lot. And questions often have a loaded agenda behind them. Let me give you a few examples, and hopefully you didn't have any experience like this over the holidays. So how's your rebellious daughter doing these days? <laughs> That's a loaded one. So how much money you make last year? Did you like my new haircut? That's a loaded one. Have you been putting on weight? And my all-time favorite one. So when are you going to get married? See, the problem with these questions is not just the question itself. The problem is that there's an agenda behind it. And really even more telling than the answer, really it's the heart of the person asking the question. And today in our text, we're going to see four really revealing questions. Three of them are directed directly to Jesus, and one, Jesus directs them to the religious leaders. And this is really a remarkable exchange between Jesus and the religious leaders in Jerusalem, and it will mark really the last time that they will have this kind of dialogue. You kind of chuckled at the end of our text this morning when it says they no longer asked him any more questions. I'm, I'm sure they didn't because they were weary of both his ability to navigate his way through their trick questions and also the fact that every time they got after him, he kind of landed a punch, so to speak, and they became weary of it. Today what we're going to do is look at these four revealing questions and then draw some conclusions or applications for our own lives about some questions that maybe we ought to ask ourselves or maybe even better, some cautions that we ought to take note of. The first question is in verse 15 and it goes like this, do we have to pay taxes? Now remember the setting, if you were here the last couple of weeks, or if you're just here on this particular Sunday, let me set the setting for you. Jesus has made his way into Jerusalem. He's in Matthew, um, a week away from the cross, although we're weeks away from that event in our study. And Jesus has already cleansed the temple, he's cursed the fig tree, he's redefined greatness, and he's told the religious rulers that God is rejecting them. He's He used parables, if you remember, and to such an extent that the Pharisees were hearing his parables and thinking, my goodness, it sounds as if he's talking about us. And it was because he was talking about them. He was telling them that God had rejected them in their spiritual fakery and was giving his heart to another group of people, and that will eventually become the church. So there's this growing tension that will then reach its climax in chapter 23 that we'll look at next week where Jesus issues a series of woes to the Pharisees. This tension is building, and in the midst of this, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herodians try and trap Jesus in some questions. Their aim is to put him in an awkward position such that he will somehow alienate himself from a particular group of people, that he will, by answering these questions, lose his authority, his kind of luster, if you will, with the people. The first question is in regards to the issue of taxation. 
and their strategy is to try and alienate him by highlighting this Roman oppression by virtue of their taxation policy. The text tells us that the Pharisees sent some of their disciples along with, and note this, some Herodians to question him. That's a really interesting data point. Because the Herodians and the Pharisees had strong disagreements. Both groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians, represented a political and religious ideology that was unique and different. We know more about the Pharisees than we do the Herodians. The Pharisees were very conservative. They were strict adherents to the law. They, they studied the law of God and they wanted Israel to reflect this law of God. They would be sort of known as the fundamentalists, if you will, in their day. They wanted the government, the law, their culture to be governed by rules taken out of the Old Testament law. At the same time, they were also considered very religious. So if you were a father, Your dream would be that your daughter would be married to a Pharisee. That would be beautiful. The Herodians, on the other hand, we know less about them, but given their um, name, it seems as though somehow they were um, sympathetic or supportive, if you will, of the the rule and reign of Herod the king. Now, Herod was a puppet king. Pharisees didn't like him because the Romans had set him in place. And the the Pharisees wanted Rome off of their back, wanted them out of um, the nation of Israel entirely. And the Herodians probably had some sort of pro-Herod orientation. And therefore, it's interesting and rather telling that the Pharisees have their disciples grow and, and gather these Herodians in order to ask Jesus a question. And I think what's happening here is that the Pharisees are trying to up the ante of the controversy. So what they thought is, let's gather two or three people into the mix, two or three groups, that have a variety of opinions, ask Jesus a really penetrating question, and then we'll see what happens. It'd be like if you gathered a group of Democrats, Republicans, uh, Libertarians, and Tea Party in the room and said, hey, what should we do to fix Social Security? And you just kind of threw that question out there. You'd get a a variety of opinions. It would be a powder keg just kind of waiting to explode because of the different ideology that would be represented in these various groups. And such was the case during Jesus' day. Now, it's interesting. Their first approach is to flatter him. Verse 16. Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you don't care about anyone's opinion. And they've clearly seen that. Um, for you are not swayed by appearances. And what they do here is they don't, they don't believe this. They're, they're trying to flatter him. You know what flattery is? Tim Keller defines it this way, that flattery is saying something to a person's face that you'd never say in their absence. Whereas gossip is saying something in the person's absence that you'd never say to their face. Do you get the difference? Let me say that again because it's really, really helpful. Flattery is saying something to the person's face that you'd never say in their absence, whereas gossip is saying something in the person's absence that you'd never say to their face. And what they do here is they try and flatter Jesus. They say things like, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and you don't care about anyone's opinion. Then they get to their question, verse 17. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now you need to understand what they're asking here. Rome had all sorts of ways to tax people, from the number of fish that you pulled out of the sea, the number of trees that were on your property, to, to toll taxes if you went on a particular road. And there was one tax, though, that was particularly onerous to the Jewish people, and it was the poll or census tax. 
It's likely that the the registration of the people in Luke chapter 2, when Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem in order to be registered, that behind that registration was this Roman policy that we wanted to figure out where people were and then tax them for living in the land of Israel. So if you're a Jewish person, here's how you would hear this. So we've got a Gentile government, the Romans, who are taxing us for being in our own land. So the tax wasn't just about commerce or travel. The tax was for being a Jew, and you were taxed for living in your own God-given land. And so therefore, they ask Jesus, is it lawful? In other words, do we have to pay this tax? What right does Caesar have to tax us for being God's people living in God's appointed land? That's the question. It's a, a loaded one. Jesus could see that this was a trap coming from a desire to do him harm in verse 18, and so he asked for a coin to be brought to him. Upon receiving the coin, Jesus asked them about whose inscription and image was on the coin. And their coins, like ours, had a picture of a famous person and then uh, some sort of inscription on it. And that inscription and that image of Caesar indicated this image of their emperor as both divine and as a high priest. And so this coin representing the reign of the Roman government and including the inscription of Caesar with this, with this image of Caesar and this inscription would represent everything that's wrong with the tax. And then Jesus responds famously with this statement, verse 21, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. That, that's a really strange thing to say. Everyone marveled at what Jesus said, and they left him. Now, why did Jesus say that, and why is it so strange? It's strange because he didn't really answer their question directly. At the same time, there's something that he's teaching here that we need to really grab a hold of, and we'll come back to this at the end. Jesus slipped through their trap by identifying that God's rule... And Caesar's rule might not be entirely contradictory. The assumption of the disciples, of the Pharisees and the Herodians, was that Caesar and God, in terms of their reign, could not coexist. True, sometimes they're in conflict when we have to obey God rather than man. But in some cases, there might be room under the rubric of God's authority for Caesar to also have authority. Therefore, the lines may not be as clear or black and white as what you would want, especially if you hated Rome and were looking for a way to say, no, you don't have to pay these taxes. You're kidding me? A Gentile ruler taxing you for being a Jew? There's no way you should have to pay the tax. But Jesus made things more complicated. And that's often what Jesus does, by the way. He indicates that they're really living in two realms. There's God's realm... And there's Caesar's realm within God's realm, and that they have obligations in both. And that was his answer. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, or render to God's the things that are God's. Now, hold that, because we'll come back to it in a moment. Just remember, God's reign and Caesar's rule, and that they have obligations in both. The second question is in regards to the afterlife. And we find in verse 23 that, Some Sadducees come to Jesus and they want to engage him in a question, sort of a strange question, about what the afterlife is like. So since the Pharisees were successful, this other group comes. Now the Sadducees were a different lot. 
they were continually at odds with the Pharisees over the issue of the afterlife or the resurrection. They don't believe in the resurrection, which is why some folks have said that's why they're sad, you see. Okay? They don't, they don't believe in the resurrection. You will remember very little of today, but you will remember that little statement. Based upon their view of the Old Testament, they had grounds for this. They would say, look, show me in the Old Testament where there's an example of the resurrection. Show me where it talks about resurrection, a person coming to life. There's the grave, you go into Sheol, but where is the resurrection? And so they would argue it, not just on some philosophical grounds, but they would argue it on, in their minds, biblical and Old Testament grounds. This, this was a group of people who were part of the aristocracy of the Jews. They were in the high priestly line and they were very interested in holding on to their power. So while the Pharisees were threatened mostly by Jesus' teaching, the Sadducees were threatened because Jesus was making things controversial and problematic. You see, the Sadducees, when the Romans came in, were Roman supporters, and that's how they retained their hold on power. So the controversy with Jesus here in Jerusalem is troubling, because if Jesus isn't careful, Rome's going to come through and take over in a whole new way, and cause this occupied territory to now be fully governed 100% by Rome, and they will lose their authority, and the temple sacrificial system may even be shut down. And so they are concerned about the preservation of their income, the preservation of their power, preservation of their status. So they ask him a question that mixes a view of marriage and also of the afterlife, and it's designed to stir up kind of this historic divide between Sadducees and Pharisees. It's intended to be the kind of question that somebody asks that the person who tries to answer will be embarrassed or ridiculed because they simply will have to say, I don't, I don't know how to answer that. It's a, it's a silly question. They were sure that he wouldn't be able to answer it. It's, a, it's almost a question that the person asking it doesn't even know. Reminds me of serving on some ordination councils, which is, is an environment where pastors get together and they ask a pastor-to-be questions about his theology And I've served on councils before where someone asks a really, really crazy question that that really is so hard that you wouldn't really even be able to know. And a good moderator will then ask the person who asked the question, Brother, do you know the answer to that question? Because if you don't know the answer to that question, we've got no business asking that question. And that's really this kind of question that we're talking about here. Verse 24 gives us the content. Teacher, Moses said, now get this, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. So one of the ways to be sure that the family line wasn't just completely ended because of a death was that if a brother died, then his widow, if she couldn't find another spouse, was to be taken in the family and married by the next brother in line and thereby continuing through an heir that brother's line, so that the, the line of the family wasn't completely ended. So then they create this scenario. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So to the second, the third, and down to the seventh. And after them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Now, about this time, I want to ask a question. And my question is, who cares, right? That's the question, right? It's a crazy question. Seven brothers, one wife, resurrection. But in their minds, here's what they're thinking, that in their sort of worldview, they see that life only exists in the realm that we know here and now. 
And the afterlife complicates things. And to give an example of that, this this marriage would be a, a prime example of that scenario. Because they would say, look, if there are multiple marriages here on earth, then what's it going to be like in the afterlife? So in their minds, having an afterlife just complicates the relationships that are here on the earth. And so therefore, the afterlife is a silly concept. can't be proven, according to them in Scripture anyways. It's a foolish idea. Jesus then responds bluntly in verse 29. This is a really important passage. He says this, that they are wrong because they neither know the Scriptures nor the power of God. Okay, get this. These folks know the Scriptures. They know the Bible. They, they know the content. They are students of theology. These are the high priestly class of people. But Jesus says to them, no, no, no. You're wrong because you neither know the Scriptures nor the power of God. And then Jesus in verse 30 says this, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So he, he answers them, first of all, said, Look, he doesn't even know what you're talking about. Jesus has lived in this arena. He knows what the realm of God is like. And he says there's, there's not marriage in heaven. There's, 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 these people are like angels. And then verse 31 to 32, he says, And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? And he quotes here now Exodus 3, 6, a favorite verse of everyone who was a Jew. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Jesus then says, He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. In other words, if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob ceased to exist, then God would say, I was the father of Abraham. I was the father of Isaac, I was the father of Jacob, but because he says, this is how Jesus argues, I am the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it argues for the fact that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, although in a different form, are still alive. But that's not the real problem. The real problem here is that the Sadducees knew enough of the Bible, they knew enough of the Old Testament law, to make their unscriptural views seem right. Note that. They, they studied the Bible, they, they knew the Bible, and they knew enough of the Bible, and yet their unscriptural views seemed and sounded to be accurate. It's scary to see that the Sadducees could study the Scriptures, could, could know the Old Testament, but they really didn't know the Scriptures or the power of God. And that's what Jesus says. He says that you neither know the Scriptures nor the power of God. So just because they were smart, just because they were uppity, just because they were successful, just because they were in the high priestly ranks, just because they had Bible knowledge, didn't mean that they were right. And the result was that Jesus, with his simple answer, silenced them. Third question. Pharisees now enter the picture. Sadducees didn't work. The disciples and the Herodians didn't work. Disciples of the Pharisees. So now the Pharisees come into the picture. And they must have been disappointed about the fact that these previous questions didn't trap Jesus. And so they devise a question to try and trap Jesus into elevating one commandment over the other. And the Pharisees were masters at this because their their whole um, existence was on the study of the law and how do you obey the law by keeping other laws and they tried to to help people obey one law by making other laws and they would rank various laws and 613 plus commandments that they tried to help people understand what true obedience looks like and so they tried to have him elevate one command over the other and of course this would have been immediately problematic because how can you elevate one command over the other Verse 36, they say, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? 
I mean, this would be like asking a dad, which of your children do you love the most? The Pharisees are assuming here that Jesus will cite one of the Ten Commandments and elevate it. But he doesn't. Instead, what he does is he goes off the Old Testament law and he goes to Deuteronomy 6.5, which was the Shema. That, that word Shema means hear, hear, O Israel. It's a daily prayer that the people prayed. So he doesn't even go to the law. Instead, he goes to a, a prayer, a commitment that every Jew would have known, would have recited daily. Here's the crazy thing, that although they're reciting this daily prayer, they don't even realize the substance of the content of what they're saying every single day. And that prayer said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. And Jesus cites that. And then he takes it even one step further, saying not only is this great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but also you are to love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven says, This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. A little sidebar there. Notice the Bible assumes that we love ourselves. Assumes. So the goal is to love others as much as we love ourselves. Our fundamental problem is not that we think too low of ourselves. The problem with mankind is we think way, 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 way too high of ourselves. That's our problem. Jesus identifies that love for God and love for others is the target of true obedience. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And while the Pharisees are concerned about which of these two commandments are the most important, Jesus doesn't even use the commandments that they're thinking about. He brings them back to the heart of what true obedience is. Loving God and loving others. And this is what they missed. They thought obedience was in the rote obedience of particular laws. And Jesus says, no, the heart of what all of this was supposed to be driving you to was a love for God and a love for others. In fact, then he goes on and he says something really remarkable, that on these two things, the whole law hangs. So everything that they loved, the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets were the things that the Pharisees loved. And on loving God and loving others, the law and the prophets hang. In other words, if you don't get loving God and loving others right, you won't be able to build the structure to understand the law. You'll miss the heart, you'll miss the essence that loving God and loving others is not just the ultimate way to keep the law, it is the very basis of the law. It is the foundation and the goal. And once again, the Pharisees have shown that while they are striving for obedience, trying to do everything right, they are doing everything wrong because they're missing the very heart of what true obedience is. It's tragic. So Jesus has now successfully navigated through three questions. Here's the fourth, and it's a question that he asks them. This will be the last exchange that they have. Jesus begins with a warm-up question. He gives them a a little softball one. Verse 42, he says, What do you think about the Christ? That word Christ is the word that means Messiah. Um, It means the anointed one, the chosen one. It's a reference to the coming Messiah, the deliverer. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? In verse 42. Jesus is asking them this question, not because they don't know the answer, but rather he's going to draw them in. And their answer is the son of David, verse 42. And they answer correctly. So who is to be the Christ? Their answer is the son of David. Now Jesus has got them where he wants them. He then asks them a challenging question about the relationship between this son of David and the notion of him being the Messiah. 
Matthew twenty-two forty-three. How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord? So what he says is, if he's the son of David, then how is it that David calls this Messiah Lord? Now, you know the answer, because it's that the Messiah is the virgin-born son of God. But the Pharisees don't know the answer. And then he quotes Psalm 110 as a reference. The Lord said to my Lord, so God said to my Lord, meaning the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And then here's the question. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Well, again, the answer is, is because he is the son of God. He's both human and divine. So the Pharisees are stuck here. They can't infer in any way that this son is also divine, that he was Lord and also still the son of David, because then Jesus will make an end run and say, I am this son of David, I am the Christ, and assert his deity yet again. They don't have a category in their brains for this kind of God-man. And so our text concludes with a rather stunning silence. Verse 46 And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. Which I think is a pretty funny verse. No no one dared ask him anything anymore. So, what we've got is we've got three questions from religious rulers, and then one question from Jesus. Both the questions and the answers are incredibly revealing. They show us the antagonistic attack, the loaded agenda of these religious leaders. And then we also see how Jesus navigates his way through these questions. And at the same time, he says things that are really important. Some things that as people who might consider yourself to be religious, or maybe at least somebody who has an interest in religious things, some things that maybe we need to think about. So let me give you three cautions from this text that I see embedded. There's probably more, but there's at least three that come from Jesus' answers to what we find here. Here's the first one. The first one is beware of living for only one realm. So Jesus says this, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God's the things that are God." What what this statement does is it reveals an important piece of a Christian worldview. You realize, don't you, that there are people in our world and they have a different view of the world. And as a person who would be a follower of Jesus, you have a particular view of the world, a view of life, a philosophy, if you will, that goes along with being a follower of Jesus. And that view of the world is radically different than how other people view the world. And what Jesus is saying here, that render under Caesar's what belongs to Caesar's, render under God what belongs to God's, God's, he's saying here is that while we live in a world that's real, with real governments and real presidents, with 12 stitches on his bottom lip and real currency and real jobs, while we live in this reality that we can see and touch, that there's another realm that we also are mindful of. That, that we are citizens of a dual kingdom. That we live in this world, but we know that this world is not ultimate. That while the government may have power and authority, and while an employer may have the ability to create income, or the, the children that we have have the ability to bring us joy, or sleep comes every 
few hours in the context of a day. The reality is the world in which we live is not ultimate. There's another kingdom, another reality, another rule that's happening. And that rule is God's rule. So St. Augustine, one of the early church fathers, describes it this way, that there's a city of God and there's a city of man. John Bunyan, while in prison, described Pilgrim on his way to a celestial city. What's happening here is that Jesus is pointing out that while there's a real earthly existence that we live in, that it is still connected to this ultimate rule and reign of God. And this reign of God is primarily an ethical one. This reign of God that transforms everything. Let me explain what this means. It means that because we're sinners and because we need atonement, that Jesus has come to pay the atonement for our sins. That's why there's a cross And when you receive Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, not only are you saved from hell in terms of your future, but he also aims to transform everything in your life right now. In fact, I would argue, and I think the scriptures argue convincingly, that if you trust in Christ for the deliverance of your sins for your future, then that must show up in how you live now, or you really don't know Christ in his fullness. The reality is, is that this transformation of the gospel affects everything in life. And your view of the world radically changes. For instance, that we would realize that there is government and that there is authority. But we know, Romans 13, that every government is a derivative of the ultimate governor, God himself. There's no kingdom, no authority, no president, no emperor, no tyrant who has any authority unless it is given by a gracious, compassionate, merciful, and sovereign God. It means that while you have a job and you work and you get real income, that you are to work not just for your employer or just for the advancement in your career, but you work as unto the Lord, Colossians 3.23. It means that in the midst of this, this working environment, there's another work that you're trying to accomplish. It means that marriage, that marriage is not just a, an institution of the government or, or, or something that the, the state and society can determine what marriage is or what it isn't or somehow create some new form of marriage. That marriage is in essence a gift and it's a picture of Christ and his church. And that this beauty of marriage is something that God has given us, not just as a means of societal preservation, but as a picture of the very heart of what he is like. And that's a worldview. It relates to the whole issue of sexuality more than just two people involved in a a, a physical activity. This is a spiritual one flesh union that's otherworldly in its essence. It means that giving, while You're giving money away is not just about the divesting of your financial resources. It's about eternal investment, Matthew 6. And it means that when you do good to anyone, Jesus says, when you do it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. That there is this constant other realm that give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God's. In other words, there is this other realm that we constantly live with our minds set upon. So we're in this world, but we're not of this world. We live on this planet, but we know that our minds and hearts are set in another realm. We're citizens of the United States, but we are bigger and better citizens of another kingdom. We are Christ's and he is our king. Thus Paul says this in Colossians 3, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth. 
Oh, beloved, how important it is to remind ourselves on this when we have just celebrated our new national holiday called Black Friday. I mean, how much earlier can stores open? Four o'clock in the morning? I mean, just think of the, just take a snapshot in your mind of of people who are lined up. I had a friend who got up at one o'clock in the morning to line up. I mean, and and think of this, this image. Just, just see it in your mind. You probably saw it on the news of long lines at Walmart of people pressing to get in to this inside. And then once the doors open, they run in like, like drooling cattle to be able to try and grab a plasma TV of which they can save a couple hundred dollars. And oh, by the way, there's only 16 of them in the store. What is, what is wrong with our culture that this is the mentality? Now, those of you who are like, oh, rats, guess what I was doing Friday. But here, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not down on Black Friday. Here's what I'm down on. I'm down on the fact that you can sit in front of a plasma TV at Christmas time and for, what, three weeks you'll go, wow, this is really living. And that thing's going to be in a landfill in 30 years. You have a new piece of technology. You get your iPad, see all your pictures of your kids, all your new apps. It's all, there's a buzz that comes with a new technology, and that doesn't last. The only thing that lasts in terms of true joy is joy in another kingdom. This world, there is no real and lasting joy. And the extent to which you can pull the joy from another kingdom into this realm, that, my friend, is really living. Relationships, technology, your job, some sort of drug, whatever it is, it's not going to work. Why? Because life is not about Caesar. There is God's realm within or overarching this realm that we now live in. That's one of the reasons why we have our Christmas offering during this particular time of year. It is to remind ourselves that life does not exist in the pursuit of things and stuff but that there are unreached peoples all over the world who need to hear the gospel. And so one of the reasons we give during this time of year is to remind ourselves that while we render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, we also are going to render to God the things that belong to him. Beware of living for only one realm. Here's the second thing. Beware of the unbalanced, self-justifying use of Scripture. Listen to me carefully and hear my heart on this. If you know elements of the Bible and you've become a student of the Bible, have a certain knowledge of the Scriptures, there's a caution that I need to tell you about. And it comes from the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and it's this. It's remarkable and frankly scary to me that the religious leaders knew the Scriptures very well, and they often used the Scriptures to justify their sinful actions and attitudes. Do you know that you can use the Bible to justify being wrong? They were able to find particular teachings in the Torah... And they would debate it and argue it while at the same time missing the very heart of obedience. And this isn't something that just stopped in the first century. This has happened throughout millennia as religious people study more and more. And I'm not against Bible study. And I would encourage you, study the scriptures, study the Bible, know your theology, dig deep, understand the full orbed reality of what the Bible is all about. I would commend the study of the Bible to you, but I also would urge you to be very careful about the tendency to baptize what you do or say with a Bible verse. 
I've seen it so often. A person begins to use and study the Bible. They, they see the power of it in people's lives. They see how people change when they quote the scriptures. And they also see what happens when they use a Bible verse. In fact, some people, particularly religious people, back down when you can cite a verse for what you're saying. They hang out and they say something and throw Matthew 6-4 along in there. And people are like, well, that's pretty good. You must be your right. You can quote a Bible verse. And before you know it, one verse at a time, the person begins to learn that there's power in being able to footnote your life, your way through life with the Bible. They zero in on isolated verses. They cite it as a justification for what they are doing or what they believe. Quoting the verses then makes them feel spiritual and it gives them a perceived leg up in arguments. And there's a fine line here between using isolated verses and individual phrases in the Bible and then you can just about justify anything you want. You realize, don't you, that most cults use the Bible to justify their existence. Even the Ku Klux Klan thought they were following the Bible. Even Satan himself uses the Bible. He knows the Bible better than all of us. So the scriptures must be handled with great care and balance. Just because you can cite a Bible passage doesn't mean you're right. Here's what Paul said in 1 Timothy 1. The aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And certain persons, listen to this, by swerving away from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Hear that? Some of the scariest counselees I've ever had as a pastor were the religious ones. For instance, one time I had a man that I was dealing with who had committed adultery on his wife more than a dozen times in the midst of their separation told me with all seriousness that his wife needed to obey him because Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. To which I said, okay, newsflash, you're not Jesus, right? <laughs> Beloved, beware of baptizing what you believe or what you do with Bible verses. This was the modus operandi of the religious crowd. Be sure what you believe and what you do fit with the whole counsel of God. Finally, third, beware of a loveless and a Christless Christianity. So the question is, what is our remedy then to this dangerous and scary position? What, what, what can we do to head off from going down this path of this religious fakery? It has everything to do with knowing who Christ is and knowing about the fact that Jesus came in order to demonstrate to us how we are to love. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Christ, then, is the intersection of love and justice. So in order to be sure that you're not a religious fake, you have to be sure that you really know who Christ is. That he's your savior, he's your Lord, he's taken over, and that he's your, your master. He's the one who is the center of everything. And it means that the more you know about him, the more you love him. 
So the question is this, here coming to the end of 2010, my question for you is this, do you love God more than what you did at the beginning of this year? I don't care if you know more Bible. I don't care if you've memorized all sorts of verses. I don't care how many people you've won to Christ. At the end of the day, all of those things pale in comparison. Do you love him more? That's the aim, to love Christ. And then, do you love your neighbor? Those are the two things that Jesus said on these. All of the law and prophets hang. So all the other things in terms of what you do at church and serving and what you do in terms of giving and having your quiet time and reading the Bible and meditating, all of these things are supposed to intersect at loving God and loving neighbor. And if not, then something is seriously wrong. And don't make the mistake of thinking, well, I'm not like the Pharisees, I'm not like the Sadducees. The fact of the matter is they would have thought the exact same thing. Love is the motivation, the means, and the goal. It was love that God lavished on us and sending his son john three sixteen. jesus said that it's by love that you demonstrate that you really are my followers paul says in first corinthians 13 that you could have all of the gifts in the planet but if you don't have love you're nothing you are clanging gong or a the noisy gong or a clanging cymbal And that's why Augustine, the first century church father, famously said, love God and do what you want. He was trying to elevate the importance of what it means to love God. Keeping love and Jesus central is critical because the Bible says, by this we know love. He laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So the ultimate remedy for this spiritual fakery that plagues religious people is to fall deeply in love with Jesus, to know him and to want to live like him and to want to be like him. Without that, if your goal is just to know the Bible, give smart answers on theology, be a student of all things scriptural, that might be a worthy goal, but at the end of the day it could result in the ruining of your soul if Christ isn't the center. If at the end of the day it doesn't lead you to love people more. If you read the Bible and suddenly you find all these application points for everybody else and you don't find your heart being smitten over how wicked your heart is and how much you need Christ, if you can read the Bible and you're not running to Christ over and over and over, then something is wrong. You are using the Bible in order to elevate yourself instead of allowing the Scriptures to do what it's designed to do, to break us, to humble us, and to make us more needy and in love of Jesus. See, if you miss Jesus or the heart of Jesus, you'll miss everything. There is no life, there is no obedience, there is no righteousness apart from Him. At the end of the day, the only remedy to not being a religious fake is to really, truly know this Christ who is Savior, Lord, King, and Sovereign. And by falling in love with Him and then living in a way that fits with His very heart, that's the only remedy to not being an absolute fake. So you have to know him. You have to love him. Otherwise, everything just breaks down. Lord, help us to not be the kind of people who fall in love with the content, fall in love with the essence, and miss the reality. Lord, it's too easy to be involved in all the things around you or about you and then to miss the very essence of who you are. 
Lord, we, we ask you to help us to be the kind of people who live in two realms, who, who realize that we are pilgrims and strangers on this earth, and we're waiting for a coming kingdom. Lord, forgive us for the countless ways that our study of the word has, can become so quickly not about us and our own sinful needs or our needs and our sin, rather, it can so quickly become about knowledge which only puffs up. And you tell us love edifies. Help us, Lord Jesus, to maybe even come back to our first love today. To maybe come back to say, Lord, I, I want my, my time with you to be about you, to really know you. And God, there may even be someone here today who just says, look, I don't know you, Christ. I'm religious, but I don't know you. I don't really, really know you. And I pray that today by seeing themselves in this passage, they might believe and come to faith. And the Lord, that all of us would be relentless in our desire to know you and love you and then to trust that you give us the grace to do these things by your power and for the formation of Christ in us, which is the hope of glory. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Hey, listen, if you need someone to pray with, either here or in worship too, we'll have some folks available afterwards. Uh, Don't leave unprayed for or unloved today if you've got a need, all right? I love you, College Park. Thanks for coming today.